Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, my name's Michael Crick and welcome to Mugshots, the podcast where we paint a portrait of some high-powered figure who's making the news right now. And we explore their background, how they got where they are today, what fires their rockets and where are they heading. This week we're taking a look at the billionaire businessman Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who was named the richest man in Britain by the Sunday Times Rich List five years ago. He's built his chemical empire, Ineos, up from nothing in just 30 years to a private company with a turnover of £65 and employs 26,000 people at almost 200 sites in 29 countries. Not bad from a boy for a council estate in Manchester. Ratcliffe calls himself deeply pro-British, yet only a couple of years after collecting his knighthood from the then Prince Charles, he became a tax exile based in Monaco, where he and his senior Ineos partners are able to avoid paying hundreds of millions in British income tax or capital gains tax. Ratcliffe also backed Brexit, He humiliated the big trade union Unite at his refinery in Scotland. He hates green taxes and is very keen to develop the environmentally highly controversial practice of fracking. Ratcliffe also has sporting interests and is bidding right now for one of the biggest prizes of all, Manchester United Football Club which is likely to cost whoever buys it from the American Glazer family five or six billion pounds or maybe more. Now, a confession here. I'm a lifelong, match-going Manchester United supporter. Indeed, I was once founder-organiser of the United Shareholders Group, so I have a particular interest in knowing all about our potential owner. Joining me in this podcast to discuss Jim Ratcliffe, we have a very distinguished cast. The former Scottish First Minister, Alex Salmond. Alex Salmond, if you had to sum up Jim Ratcliffe in three adjectives, what would they be? Driven, uh, successful and very rich. The former leader of the Scottish Labour Party and member of the Scottish Parliament, Richard Leonard. Rich, powerful, ruthless. And the former Dean of the London Business School. Professor Sir Andrew Lickerman. I think he's a bloody good businessman. James Arthur Ratcliffe was born on the 18th of October 1952 in a council house in Dunkley Avenue in Failsworth, 
East Manchester, less than two miles from where Manchester United, then called Newton Heath, were founded in the late 19th century. His parents supplied, in a way, two small threads to his later career. His father was a joiner who helped make furniture for laboratories, while his mother worked in the council accounts department. And she would remember in later years her son saying he always wanted to be a millionaire. The family moved to Yorkshire. Jim went to Beverley Grammar School, then did chemical engineering at Birmingham University. Go got atrocious grades, he said. He got a job with Esso, who sponsored an MBA at the London Business School, where Andrew Lickerman taught Jim Ratcliffe. I did. I'm proud to say I did. And what was he like? It was always clear that here was somebody who was ambitious and capable and was going to get on. I don't think we realised just how, how much he was going to get on and how impressive his trajectory would be. What has been fascinating is that the London business has not been, as it were, terribly good at getting British manufacturing to thrive. But here is somebody who really has done it. I mean, it's a very impressive achievement in that way on his part. Um, I don't think that the, the fact that we haven't made huge impact on manufacturing in the UK is down to us, as it were. We've known that this has been not a good time for British manufacturing. He is exceptional in the way in which here's somebody UK-born has done something impressive in manufacturing. Well, of course, not just in the UK, but around the world. And did you see that in the pupil of, of 45 years ago? Look, I'd love to say I saw it all. I mean, he, as I say, he was he was clearly impressive and he had something which very many people don't have. And this, is, I think, is one of the reasons uh, for his success, which is that he combined a deep technical knowledge and ability to understand technical issues with an ability to understand the business side of business, uh, the financial and managerial sides. I mean, very often you have people who are good at one and not good at the other. The fact that Jim combines the two is something which is of a huge advantage and has been for him in, in what, he's, what he's done. After his days with Andrew Lickerman at the London Business School, Jim Ratcliffe went into venture capital with a firm called Advent International, helping to invest money in promising businesses, picking winners and risking someone else's money. But he found it frustrating then sitting on boards as an advisor, thinking he might actually run the businesses rather better. So he hopped over the fence, in his words, and became an entrepreneur himself risking his own money. In 1992, when he was already 40, Ratcliffe and two colleagues founded a firm called Inspec, which bought the BP Chemicals site in Antwerp in Belgium. Six years later, he started Ineos, which bought out Inspec for a billion pounds and, using high-yield debt, began buying up parts of old blue-chip businesses, such as BP and the former ICI where Ratcliffe saw the potential at various sites and plants to cut costs and rapidly double their earnings. Andrew Lickerman again. Can you explain to us how he's actually built this business up from nothing to one worth tens of billions of pounds? The principle is as follows. 
the oil companies, the oil majors, had chemical plants, a lot of them, chemical operations. There came a time when they basically wanted to get out of chemicals. They saw chemicals as a distraction from their main business, which was the oil and gas, which they were uh, involved in. And so they started divesting their plants, their chemical plants. That came at a time when Jim was looking for, as it were, a business, an operation, a possibility for him um, to, to go into business. And the two came together. In order to operate a chemical plant, you've got to be pretty good. You've got to be pretty good, as I said, at the business side, but also to understand the technical side. And you've got to be a good manager. Now, what had happened is that the chemical plants had not been well managed. They'd been regarded as peripheral assets for the oil companies. And so, um, you know, they sort of, they'd been a bit neglected as part of the, the big oil empires. So what Jim did and has continued to do was to find assets that were not well managed and manage them well. That's what really amounts to. Um, so the value added he's provided is actually something which enabled these assets to realize their full potential, which they weren't doing as part of the big oil majors. And again, it's not just a question of turning a plant round from something that is uh, you know, not very well managed and then managed a bit better. You've got to carry on managing it. So what he has done is create in Ineos a company where, which is well managed, has got very good managers who do this well on a continuing basis. Seven years ago, Professor Lickerman held an in-conversation event with Jim Ratcliffe at the London Business School, which the school kindly put on YouTube. One of the keys in our development is to get people to behave like owners rather than employees. Um, because if, if people behave like an owner, you don't, you, don't need, you don't need policemen watching over them all the time. Because, you know, they're generally striving to be successful in the business that they're managing. And that, that's what we, we finished up doing in Inspect, uh, by allowing people to take equity in their individual components of the business that they were operating. And Ineos operates on a kind of federal system, he explained to the LBS audience, with only 20 or so people working in their head office. We expect people to run these businesses very independently and run them as if they're their own business. So they're responsible for their own IT, their own HR, their own legal, their own tax, you know. Um, and we just have a few people in head office that keep an eye on things. And, we, we, and then... You might say, well, how does that, how does that work? Because you finish it with all your businesses going off in different directions. But we operate a federation. So, so all the IT people from the various businesses get together from time to time and they try and develop best practices across the group. Or they'll help other people in the group and same in HR and things like that. You know. So you can get it to... It's just the, it's, that's the INEOS... If you look at BSF, it's completely different. It's all driven from head office. Uh, Exxon is all driven from head office. And, you know, the people out in the in the businesses, have limited uh, ability to make decisions. Ineos is a different model. That, I think, is also very much linked to the fact that this remains a private company. It's more difficult to do this when you've got shareholders looking over your shoulder from the outside. So what he's done is he has created this structure where people are given a great deal of responsibility, 
which is another reason why you can then attract good managers and keep them because they're given that responsibility without having to worry about lots of things that, you know, outside shareholders worry about in large publicly listed companies. And so this federal idea to do with um, the, the, the private structure has been, I think, an important element in, in all this. And his subsidiary CEOs must also have the ability to laugh, Ratcliffe explained to the London Business School, and not be solemn all the time. Chief executives who have a bit of a sense of humour attract better teams. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you spend a lot of time working and, you know, you want, you want to enjoy life a bit. You know, if, it, if you've got some miserable sod that you're working for, <laughs> you know, life ain't much fun, really, and you spend a lot of time working. So, you know, the characters that you choose as chief executives, that, 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 you know, that element of the character we quite often forget. <clears throat> and it's, a sort of, it's quite important as a leadership character. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. In 2006, Ineos bought the petrochemicals division of BP, Innovine, for £9 billion, which gave Ratcliffe several refineries in Europe and in Canada, but also BP's Grangemouth refinery and petrochemicals complex on the south bank of the Firth of Forth in Scotland. A spectacular sight one can see for miles with its gas flares and cooling towers. Ratcliffe was soon involved in major disputes with the big trade union Unite at Grangemouth. First in 2008, when the union got the better of him over pension rights. And then in 2013, the rematch, when he threatened to close Grangemouth unless Unite agreed to changes in terms and conditions. And Ratcliffe bypassed the union to offer workers new deals, many of them accepted. The Unite leader, Len McCluskey, had to go to Grangemouth to concede defeat and agree to nearly all Ratcliffe's demands. As First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond tried to play a conciliation role in both disputes. Salmond is very different politically to Ratcliffe, of course, but he has quite an admiration for the man. I find Jim uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, I mean, look, it was... John Maynard Keynes once said that capitalism was the incredible belief that the nastiest of men working for the basest of motives would somehow work to the benefit of us all. Uh, so within the terms of being a, a ruthless capitalist, uh, I actually found Jim Ratcliffe a rather straightforward ruthless capitalist. I mean, you know, he, he's a hard-nosed business person. That's what he is. You mustn't expect him not to be hard-nosed. But I, I, my dealings with Jim Ratcliffe were, were pretty positive. But, I mean, Alex, you're a man of the left. Jim Ratcliffe was pretty hard on the trades unions at Grangemouth, wasn't he? He's, he's, uh, and, and, of course, he's, he backed Brexit as well. What are you, a man of the left, 
saying nice things about him for? Yes, of course, I sympathised with the, the workers at Grangemouth, particularly in 2013, uh, and did my absolute best to improve the circumstances when Jim basically had them over a barrel, uh, and I did my best to help them, and I think I, I succeeded. Uh, the In 2007, uh, the workers had Jim over a barrel. The only problem with Jim being over a barrel is that would have resulted in the closure of Grangemouth, which would have been... Well, 1,200, 1,300 jobs in Grangemouth, but 7,000 jobs in a major hole in the Scottish economy. Richard Leonard, however, a Labour member of the Scottish Parliament for the region covering Grangemouth, takes a very different view. When he took over the BP sites in Grangemouth, he embarked on a programme of cutting jobs, getting rid of the pension scheme, taking on the trade union and de-recognised the trade union. So it's that kind of ruthless buccaneering capitalism. And of course, he's got immense power because of the structure of the company that he owns. Uh, I mean, it's not like a conventional stock exchange quoted company where there are some even veneers of accountability there. There are none. You know, he, he, he's he got a huge uh, monopoly of power. And from the perspective of Scotland, the Ineos complex that he owns constitutes almost 10% of the GDP of the Scottish economy. Uh, so it's a, it's a massive national strategic asset in one man's hands. And that man is a tax billionaire uh, exiled in the south of France, owning a company with corporate headquarters in a tax-avoiding um, Switzerland location. So, I mean, this is, this is not somebody who is um, readily accountable to other people. He would argue, his friends would argue. Indeed... I was speaking only yesterday to a, a leading uh, figure in uh, in Unite who argued that actually he's created hundreds of jobs over the years. He's invested. He's kept things going. Um, he's uh, been good for uh, workers, good for Unite members. Well, there is a book which um, Manchester United fans might want to read. Maybe it could be the required reading of the Stretford End, Michael, I don't know but it's called The Battle of Grangemouth. And it's written by a guy called Mark Lyon, who was the Unite convener in Grange, Grangemouth uh, when Jim Ratcliffe took over and uh, when Jim Ratcliffe was trying to squeeze out the union and drive down the terms and conditions of the workforce. I mean, it was a, a stable industrial relations environment until Jim Ratcliffe appeared on the scene. So I think... Um, I, I don't know who in Unite you have spoken to that speaks glowingly of Jim Ratcliffe, but you must have searched long and hard to try and find somebody. I mean, what would you say to those people who say, yeah, but he's created jobs, he's invested money in Grangemouth and in all sorts of other plants. He has been good for manufacturing in a way that not many other people have. Well, I mean, the plant is still going, but there, there have been points uh, during the history of his ownership of uh, both the refinery and now he owns the the Fortis pipeline, which again is another very important strategic asset, actually not just for the Scottish economy, but for the British economy. Uh, and there are times when he's threatened to close them down. Uh, you know, so he's he's got a very um, strange approach, which is, um, I guess, could be characterised as being somebody who's prepared to go down the route of a strike of capital. We hear lots about the strikes of labour and so on, but this is somebody who's prepared to withdraw his investment if he doesn't get his way. I mean, he does recognise the union again these days, I think, though, doesn't he? Yeah. 
And uh, I mean, he says that, he, he, you know, he does believe in unions. They're a good way of communicating with the workforce. Yeah. And and again, I've had meetings with the company uh, where they've said to me, uh, we're not anti-trade union. We just don't like the national leadership of Unite or we just we're not going to have a trade union telling us what to do when it comes to health and safety. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, but under the law since 1974, trade unions have got a voice when it comes to things like health and safety. And uh, on a site like um, the chemical plant in Grangemouth or the refinery in Grangemouth or the Fortis pipeline, uh, actually a strong voice uh, for the workforce on matters of health and safety, in my view, is paramount. Today, relations between Ratcliffe and Unite are much improved. Indeed, one long-standing senior Unite figure even praised Ratcliffe when I spoke to him. He's created hundreds of jobs, he told me. He's very pragmatic and he's invested hundreds of millions in British companies and turned them round. So what of Ratcliffe's interest in sport? As Sir Jim waits to see whether his latest bid for Manchester United will be accepted... It's worth noting that he's already bought two top division European sides in the last six years, Lausanne in Switzerland and Nice in France, though neither has achieved much success under his ownership. And only last year, Ratcliffe expressed interest in buying Chelsea, where, despite being a United fan, he has a season ticket. Indeed, Ratcliffe has gone on a splurge of sports acquisitions in recent times. He also bought the Team Sky Cycling franchise, which won the Tour de France in 2021. He owns a third of the Mercedes Formula One team. And having invited Sir Ben Ainsley to the Grenadier, a smart pub which Ratcliffe owns near Knightsbridge, he teamed up with Ainsley, the most successful sailor in Olympic history, and spent millions on an unsuccessful attempt to win the 2021 Admiral's Cup. I only went for a gin and tonic, Ratcliffe remarked later, and it cost me £110 million. Manchester United would cost a lot, lot more, of course, perhaps as much as six or seven billion. But would Sir Jim be good news for Manchester United supporters? Andrew Lickerman of the London Business School again. I was born near Manchester, so, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in all this. I would say that, you know, bearing in mind, if you, one looks back at what, what he's done, you look in particular at the way in which what he's done is not just about saying, I want to make money from something. It's characterised by the hallmark of, I want to do something well. So if I was a Manchester United supporter... I would be saying that sounds like the right kind of thing. Obviously, the fact that he has been a, been, been a fan for, for so long indicates, as it were, that, that there's a bit of heart there which goes into, it's going to go into this. It's not just a question of regard as a business proposition. Alex Salmond agrees. Two things Jim would offer. One is that he would offer the, the, the funds to, <laughs> to make a success of it in what is a highly competitive and very, very, very well-funded uh, area in the Premier League. Uh, and secondly, of course, he is a, a football supporter. Uh, and in that sense, he would be unusual in some of the structures of ownership of, uh, of England's major clubs. He would actually have a supporter, albeit a, 
multi, multi, multi billionaire supporter owning the club. And I, I think that would probably be a good thing. So I, I, if, I, if I was a Manchester United fan, I'd be not relaxed. I'd be quite keen on the idea of, of Jim Ratcliffe taking over. Richard Leonard, you support Leeds United. Would you welcome Jim Ratcliffe if you were a Manchester United fan like me? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Because I think, uh, well, I mean, there are some interesting options uh, before Manchester United fans, aren't there? Whether it's the Qataris or Jim Ratcliffe, I'm not quite sure whether one's the devil and one's the deep blue sea. But it's not that long since he was trying to buy Chelsea. So, um, and I know that the story is that he's a lifetime Manchester United fan. And I suppose any club looking for an investor would be quite attracted by the idea of somebody who's a supporter of the club and not just somebody who's uh, looking to sweat the assets or to make money out of it. Uh, but I would be very wary because not only am I a Leeds United supporter, Michael, I'm also the uh, parliamentary spokesperson for the Professional Footballs Association in Scotland. So um, uh, I'm not quite sure whether uh, the ideology and the outlook of some of the players, I think of people like Marcus Rashford, would be very compatible with the Ratcliffe worldview about um, the concentration of power and uh, who decides um, what the future of a, a business and or a football club is. So I would be very, very wary if I was a Manchester United fan of Jim Ratcliffe, tax exile billionaire, uh, moving in to take the club over. The voice there of Richard Leonard, and before that, Alex Salmon, with very different views on whether Sir Jim Ratcliffe would be good news for Manchester United. My thanks to them and also to Professor Sir Andrew Lickerman of the London Business School for joining us in this podcast. I and fellow Old Trafford Reds will have to wait and see, of course, if the boy from Failsworth gets his hands on our club. Or, more likely, whether it's taken over by the Qataris or perhaps an American consortium. We hope you'll join us again next week for another edition of Mugshots, where I'll be again exploring another important figure who's changing our world. Or at least trying to. In the meantime... You can catch up with previous editions of Mugshots wherever it is you get your podcasts. Goodbye. Mugshots was produced and presented by Michael Crick with Neil Fern and me, Alex Reese. The lead producer for Podmasters was Jacob Jarvis and the group editor was Andrew Harrison. Mugshots is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.